And we're following the journey of a man considered by Christians to be the father of faith. That man's name is Abraham. And as we follow his story through the book of Genesis, we see him face one test after another in the area of faith, the challenge to trust God in ever increasing greater ways. And Abraham's journey gives us lots of encouragement and lots of instruction because we're gonna see a lot of ourselves in his journey, in his failures, in his tests, in the lessons that he learns, but even in his victories as well, thankfully. In last week's study, the Lord visited Abraham once again and repeated all of his glorious promises that he would have a son, that his family line would grow to become a great nation and include kings, that his family line would be given a special piece of land on the earth, and on and on went the Lord's promises to Abraham. And then the Lord revealed that the physical mark of this covenant he was making with Abraham would be circumcision, surprise. And we talked about why that would be the case and what that all actually meant. And by the grace of God, we managed to line up that subject beautifully with the calendar so that we got to speak about it on Father's Day. It's amazing how the Lord truly does cause all things to work together for good. This week, Jesus is going to visit Abraham and Sarah once again. This is likely going to take place just a few weeks after the events of the previous chapter, chapter 17. And we're going to find that over the years, Sarah has moved to the place of no longer believing the promises of God because so much time has passed without them being fulfilled. And then we'll witness a shocking conversation between Abraham and the Lord that's gonna teach us about the Lord's character and also give us some fascinating insight into the end time. So let's jump in. Genesis 18, verse one. Have your pen ready. Then the Lord, underline the Lord, appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, Abraham did, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, underline my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. So as stated in verse one and recognized by Abraham, this is Jesus in the flesh accompanied by two angels. And they appear just in front of Abraham's tent. Abraham sees them, instantly recognizes that it's the Lord, runs out to meet them and says, stay. Don't just walk on by, stay for a little bit. Verse four, Abraham says, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham, now underline some words here, underline hurried. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham, underline ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man. And he, underline hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And I had you underline the words hurried, ran and hastened because they all speak to the enthusiasm that Abraham had at this visitation from Jesus. Abraham was excited by the presence of God. And if you're a believer, you have the very spirit of God dwelling within you all the time, and the truth is it is so easy 
for me to take that for granted. When the opportunity exists to to study the word, to take a moment to pray, to, to gather with other believers and worship and do those things, is there enthusiasm within me or have I drifted to the place of apathy where I say, you know, the Lord's always there. No need to get excited. I can't help but notice Abraham's enthusiasm and and be reminded in that, that we are so blessed to have that same Lord with us right now at this very moment. He's here and we don't have to wonder if maybe we'll only be in his presence again in 14 years. We know that as we leave, he'll go with us. As we go home, he'll be at home with us. And so my prayer is just that we would be people who value the presence of God. Would you make a note of that? Abraham, we see, valued the presence of the Lord. He valued the presence of the Lord. And on a different note, for you Bible scholars, it's worth noting something here, and then maybe on your own time you can ponder its significance. The meal that's being described here and is served to Jesus is not kosher. It's not kosher because under kosher laws, you can never serve meat and dairy together. You can never have milk and meat together. Even in Israel today, if you want to order a pizza, they're going to check at your hotel lobby whether or not you put pepperoni on that pizza because you can't have cheese and meat together. You can't have dairy and meat together. If you go in the morning and they're serving breakfast sausages in your hotel or something like that and they're serving coffee, they're going to have a milk substitute. It's going to taste awful like all milk substitutes do, but they're not going to have real dairy milk because this is not a kosher meal and yet the Lord eats it, even though Abraham is technically the first Jew. Very interesting, and you can think more on what that might mean in your own time. Verse 9, they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? So he said, here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Do you remember what the Lord had told Abraham in the previous chapter? He had said, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And now just a few weeks later, Jesus appears in the flesh and repeats the promise to Abraham. And I was studying this and just thinking, why is it that the Lord appears to Abraham again just a few weeks later to repeat the same thing? Why why does he do that? Abraham's in this place of waiting. And I think that the reason is because it was simply to strengthen Abraham's faith. Because when it comes to his promises, the Lord doesn't want us to simply wait. He wants us to wait with faith. And in the previous chapter, when the Lord had shared this news with Abraham that Sarah would have a son, Abraham had had laughed. And it wasn't a laugh of mockery, but it was just a laugh of astonishment of, okay, Lord, I don't know how that could be possible, but if that's what you're going to do, then cool. I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say it's ridiculous. I'm not going to talk back to the Lord, but let's just see what happens, I guess. That's the sort of place that Abraham was in. He wasn't disbelieving, but he wasn't clinging to faith either in expectation. And so the Lord shows up and he says essentially, Abraham, I want you to believe this. I want you to really believe this. I want you to stand in faith And I want you to stand in the place of expectation. Not in the place of let's wait and see what happens. Not simply in the place of I won't say that it's impossible for the Lord. 
Abraham, I want you to be in the place of expectation and faith. So write this down. The Lord wants us to wait on his promises with faith and expectation. With faith and expectation. Then we're told this, that Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. That's an understatement, by the way. They are within striking range of 100 at this point, just to put that in perspective. And this is in the age before pharmaceuticals, if you can connect the dots on that statement, okay? Verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed, and then underline, within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord, speaking of Abraham, being old also. So Sarah is eavesdropping. She's just behind the tent door. And when Jesus tells Abraham that Sarah is going to soon give birth to a son, we're told that she laughs within herself. Did you underline that? In other words, she did not laugh out loud. It's telling us that explicitly. It's not a laugh of amazement either. This is a scoffing laugh. This is a cynical, disbelieving laugh. Now check out what happens next. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? So the Lord says, why is Sarah laughing? Abraham is like, what? What? Sarah's not even here. And then the Lord says, underline this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So what the Lord does is he reframes the issue of Sarah's disbelief. And he actually says, let's think about this from a position of logic. And people will sometimes ask the question, how can you believe in things like miracles? How can you believe in them? And the answer is very simple. Make a note of this. If God exists, then miracles are possible. God exists, therefore, miracles are possible. If God exists, then miracles are possible. God exists, therefore miracles are possible. You see, the question of miracles, if anyone asks you about this ever, the question of miracles is really the question of does God exist? Because if there's a God who exists, who made the heavens and the earth, everything that exists, then obviously it's within his ability to perform miracles and transcend the laws of the natural universe. It's no problem. If God exists, then by default miracles exist. So if anyone ever asks you this, the conversation you want to have is, does God exist? And the way you want to take that conversation, as always, is back to Jesus, back to the resurrection, back to the evidence for the resurrection, which proves that Jesus is God. So Jesus says, there's no question I exist, Abraham. You know it. Sarah knows it. And I'm right here, right now. I made everything that exists. So why logically would me giving Sarah a child be too difficult for me? Why why would that be too difficult? Do you realize that for the Lord, curing a headache and curing cancer are equally easy? He can cure both equally easily. The difference is that you and I rank things according to their difficulty. And the difference is that you and I are able to stir up different amounts of faith based on how difficult we think a miracle would be. But we need to be very careful that the reason we're not praying and fasting is because we think that it's somehow more difficult for the Lord. And so we better really chip in some quality prayers here to help God out. Because this is a tough one, right? 
The reason that we pray and fast is because we want the Lord to stir our faith. And we want to get our mind and our heart into agreement with what his word says. Make sure that nowhere in your thinking is the thought, I need to help God out. I need to fast and really pray diligently because this is a tough one. Not for the Lord. Not for the Lord. It's a tough one for us. And so that's why we pray. We want to be on board with the Lord. We want to be in unity with the Lord. That's why we do that. Verse 14 again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So Sarah laughs within herself, and then Jesus, outside the tent, who can't see or hear Sarah, or so she thought, says, why did Sarah just laugh? And Sarah sticks her head out the tent door and says, I didn't laugh. And Jesus says, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. So as we encounter Sarah at this point in her life, you can tell that something's happened. Her husband and her had received promises from the Lord that they would have a son who would grow into a mighty nation of God's people. But a lot of time has passed. At this point, over 14 years have passed since they first got that promise from the Lord. And during those 14 years, as one year turned into another year, turned into yet another year, something happened in Sarah. She, be, she became disappointed, and she became disillusioned, and she became cynical. And over time, that disappointment turned into bitterness. And she turned into someone who was still very much a believer, but she no longer took the word of God seriously. She no longer believed that God's promises were going to literally happen in her life. She became someone who believed in God, but no longer believed God. So make a note of this. Sarah let time turn her into a bitter believer who believed in God, but no longer believed God. Through bitterness, she said, I I know the Lord is still real. I know he's still in charge of everything. I think he still loves me. But as far as what he says he's going to do for me in my life specifically, no. I don't really believe that anymore. She believed in God, but she didn't believe God. And just like us, she didn't walk around saying this. I mean, none of us would really usually walk around to church. How are you doing? Doing good? Realized this week I don't really believe God anymore. Don't believe his promises. She's like a church-going person. So she doesn't actually say that. She just scoffs at the promises of God. What does it say? Within herself. Within herself. Within her own heart and mind. She thinks, yeah, whatever. Whenever the subject of God's promises came up. And and maybe you've been there. Maybe that's where you are right now. In verse 14, the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord. And the original Hebrew word that's, that's used there for that word hard or difficult can mean just that. But it can also equally mean and be translated as wonderful or marvelous. So it's equally possible that the question the Lord is asking Abraham and Sarah by proxy is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I think there's an insight in there for us because sometimes the issue for us is not that we think something's too hard for the Lord or too difficult for the Lord. 
But the issue is that we think it's too wonderful for him to ever do for us or in us. We think God wouldn't do that for me. That, that's just too good. That would be too wonderful. We believe God is able, but we're not convinced that he's willing. Not for us. And maybe you feel that way because in your mind you've messed up too much. And so you think, I've, I've blown it. I know God's going to take care of me, but it's probably going to be like a bare minimum type thing. And I know I don't even deserve that, but I've, I've probably blown it as far as the really big, wonderful stuff. I've missed out on that stuff. And perhaps Sarah was thinking, you know, having a son might have happened for me at one time, but, but not now. I, I mean, I've messed up too badly. I, I talked my husband into adultery as a way to bring about God's promises. There's, there's no way God's going to bless me with my own son now. You know, whatever the Lord has promised you, whatever his word has promised you, you don't deserve it. Just like your salvation. And yet you have it. Just like you don't deserve his love. And yet you have it. Everything good that we have, the Bible says, comes from the Lord. And none of it is deserved. And yet we have it. If you're struggling to believe that God wants to bless you and wants to keep his promises to you still, the solution, the way you're going to change your mindset is by getting to know God's character as you walk with him, getting to know who he is, what he's actually like. Because when you begin to realize how good and how loving and how gracious our God truly is, here's what you're going to realize. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. There are not words in the English language to accurately describe how wonderful he is, who God is. Nothing's too wonderful for him. Would you write this down? When we walk with the Lord, his character will fuel our faith through the years. His character will fuel our faith through the years. The way you make it through years of waiting on a promise from the Lord is by knowing his character and not losing touch with that. If we'll stay connected to the Lord, if we'll stay in relationship with the Lord, abiding in the Lord, we will encounter his character on a daily basis over and over again. And as we encounter the character of God, it keeps us confident in his promises even across great lengths of time. And our story's gonna shift gears as we keep going into verse 16. It says, then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So they all get up. And Jesus and the two angels start walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is walking with them a little way as a, as a customary way to say goodbye to someone who was your guest. Verse 17, and the Lord said, this is actually going to be what the Lord was thinking for lack of a better term. And the Lord said, underline this sentence, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So don't miss this. Track with me here. God asks the question. He contemplates the question, shall I hide, shall I conceal my future plans from Abraham? 
This is what God is thinking about. Verse 19, for I have known him, and underline this whole long section here. This is huge. I have known him, why? In order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So tune in here. This is some huge stuff. God says, shall I hide my future plans from Abraham? I mean, after all, he belongs to me. But not only that, God shares with us, the reader, the reason that he feels compelled to share this information, the reason he feels like he should share this revelation with Abraham is because he knows that Abraham is a man who will use this revelation to teach his children, to teach his household, to follow the Lord and walk in righteousness. That's what the Lord says. Do you see that right there? So God himself connects the spiritual revelation he's going to give Abraham to the fact that he knows Abraham will then share that special revelation with his children and his family. That's a profound truth that is still true to this day. The Lord gives revelation to those who will use it to bring him greater glory. The Lord gives understanding to those who will use it to bring him greater glory, to speak into others, to walk in that revelation. And so if we will share what the Lord reveals to us with other people, with our kids, with our spouse, the Lord will make sure that we always have something to share. Don't miss that connection. Write this down. The Lord was compelled to share revelation with Abraham because he knew Abraham would share it with his family. He knew Abraham would share it with his family. He knew Abraham wouldn't go, oh, that's interesting, let me never talk about it again. He knew he'd share it. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he said of his disciples, this is my family. Jesus referred to his disciples as his family. Dads, especially, for us, our family are our disciples. They're the ones that the Lord has given us to shepherd and to disciple. I heard a preacher say it this way, if you have any opinions about how church should be done, I hope you're doing it in your church, which is your home and your family. I hope you're pastoring well the flock that the Lord has given you, your disciples. The Lord has revelation he wants to share, but he's looking for people. He's looking especially for dads, fathers, husbands who will share it and help their family walk in the Lord with that information. And then we'll see the Lord clearly decide now that he does need to share his future plans with Abraham. And we read that the Lord began to speak to Abraham in verse 20. It says, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So just as the Lord came down, you might remember, to check out the scene at the Tower of Babel, the Lord Jesus comes down to check out the scene at Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea is that Jesus is telling this to Abraham. He's sharing with Abraham that the sin and suffering taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah has reached the point where he needs to act. And so he's going to check it out. And I want to draw your attention to something here that has massive implications for you and I. 
These verses are gonna be on your outlines. In the New Testament book of James, it famously tells us that Abraham was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus refers not only to Abraham as his friend, but his disciples as his friends. But Jesus tells his disciples that the evidence for this fact is that he does something for them that he only does for his friends. He shares with them his plans for the future for big things. We're talking about big things like Israel, the fate of the world, the second coming. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus shared with his disciples. And Jesus said, I only share things like that with my friends. That's how you know that you're my friends. In fact, everything the Father has revealed to me about the future, I have revealed to you. God did it for Abraham. He did it for his disciples. And guess what? He's done it for you and I through his word. Because we are his friends too. As incredible and unbelievable as that sounds, it's true. The Lord considers us to be his friends. And let me just say this. If the Lord's desire is to share his future plans with us because we're his friends, doesn't it just make sense that he would want us to understand those plans? Doesn't it just make sense that he would want us to be able to understand what he's saying when he shares that information? I have special information that I want to share with you because you're my friends, but I have no intention of letting you understand it. So I'm just going to talk in language and imagery and secret codes that you can't possibly understand. That doesn't make any kind of sense at all. Surely when the Lord shares something with us because we're his friends, it's so that we can understand it, surely. And the good news is that we can because he's made it plain to us. Even though there are those who are saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So, sorry, old habits, old habits, old habits. If you don't get that inside joke, you need to get our message series on the book of Revelation because that book really will change your life. So Jesus shared things with his disciples like this regarding the future. I love it. One of my favorite passages of scripture on your outlines from John 14. Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. And then get what he says here. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. I love that. Jesus says, I'm telling you how it's going to all go down in the end. And if this weren't the truth, I would have told you, because you're my friends. So make a note of this. The Lord shares his future plans with those he considers to be his friends. The Lord shares his future plans with those he considers to be his friends. 
What a privilege it is that the Lord has shared his future plans with us. It's such an honor. Now Abraham knows what Sodom and Gomorrah is like. He knows its reputation. He knows it's overrun by sin and hedonism and paganism and all kinds of evil. And Abraham knows that when the Lord goes to check it out, he's only going to reach one conclusion. This city needs to be destroyed. The city is, is beyond repair. The people are so far gone. And this concerns Abraham because guess who lives in Sodom? His ne'er-do-good nephew, Lot, along with Lot's wife and children. Verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the two angels who were with the Lord go on without him to check out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll find out what happens to them in the next chapter. Abraham and Jesus are left alone to speak. And now Abraham is going to respond to the information that the Lord has just shared with him. Now tune in again. Big stuff coming up right here. There, there's a massive principle that's going to be illuminated here that is absolutely essential to understanding eschatology. What the Bible says about the end times. It's a principle that's demonstrated here all the way back in Genesis. Even before the law. And it's still in effect today. So grab your pen, get ready to underline some things. There's some huge stuff here. Verse 23, and Abraham came near and said, now underline this question. He says to the Lord, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Now then underline all of verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You want to talk about audacious. He's talking to the Lord and Abraham is claiming righteous indignation. That's his approach with the Lord. Now think with me, church. What is the essence here of Abraham's objection to God potentially destroying Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does Abraham claim that this would be unthinkable? It's very simple. It's right there. Because there are believers living among those who have rejected the Lord, and those believers would be destroyed too if God destroyed the city, right? There's no way you can't read that in the text. It's very, very plain. So write this down and then we'll keep unpacking this. Abraham's claim is that it would be morally reprehensible for the Lord to destroy believers alongside those who have rejected the Lord. Abraham's saying it would be morally reprehensible for you to do that, Lord. Now look at verses 23 through 25 and I think I'm not reading into that at all. It's just exactly what Abraham's very plainly saying. Abraham says, it would be unthinkable for you to just have believers die under your wrath as collateral damage because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Abraham says a loving and good God could not possibly allow his own children to be destroyed by his own hand. He couldn't possibly be okay with his own kids being collateral damage when he judges the wicked. Abraham's objection to the Lord is he's saying to God, it would be immoral for you to do that. That's why he says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a pretty big accusation, wouldn't you say? It's a serious thing to say to the Lord, God, 
there is right and wrong, and in this instance, it would clearly be wrong for you to do this. So the first thing I need to point out is this. If you believe that there will be no rapture of the church, and that believers are going to go through all the suffering of the tribulation, if you believe that believers will go through most of the tribulation before being raptured about halfway through it, or if you believe that there will be some sort of rapture after all the suffering of the tribulation, then you believe that when Abraham asked the Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked, that the Lord's answer will be yes. That's what you believe if you hold to any of those views. Make a note of this. To believe that the Lord will not rapture his church before the tribulation is to believe that the Lord will destroy the righteous with the wicked. To believe that God will not remove believers from the earth before he judges the earth is to believe that the Lord will destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now let's see what happens. Let's see how the Lord responds. Let's see if the Lord says to Abraham, darn right I will. Let's see if he responds by putting Abraham in his place or, or if he gives Abraham a lecture about how he's God and can do whatever he wants or if he chastises Abraham by saying, Abraham, my ways are not your ways. I, I'm the potter and I can do whatever I want with the clay. Pay attention to how the Lord responds to Abraham. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So being the first Jew, Abraham just can't resist a good negotiation. Then Abraham answered and said, uh, indeed now, uh, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? That's all the Jewish impression I'm going to do. So he said, that was four hours of my study this week, just working on that impression right there. Didn't pay off. So the Lord says, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Verse 29, and he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So get this, the Lord, he doesn't chastise Abraham. He doesn't put him in his place. He doesn't say, how dare you? Why? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord agrees with Abraham. He's not offended by what Abraham says because he agrees with Abraham. It would be immoral for God to destroy his own children simply because they were too close to the wicked on the day of judgment. And in the next chapter, we're going to see that the Lord had a plan all along to remove those who are his from Sodom before he pours out judgment upon those who have rejected him. That's why God doesn't lose it on Abraham. He agreed with Abraham and already had a plan in place to make sure that he didn't destroy the righteous along with the wicked. Because that's how God works. 
It's how he worked in Genesis. It's how he works in Revelation. It was God's heart then. It's God's heart now to remove those who belong to him before he pours out his judgment. Our view on the end times and the rapture of the church is the only view that is consistent with the character of God that we see displayed here toward Abraham and throughout the scriptures. It's the only view that harmonizes with that. Remember the great flood that we read about earlier in Genesis? The picture of the believer in that day was Enoch. And what happened to Enoch before the flood hit? He's raptured. He's removed from the earth. When we were studying the book of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace in Babylon, the picture of the believer is Daniel. And where is Daniel in the fiery trial? He's nowhere to be found. In all likelihood, he's out of country. He's not even there when it all happens. And in next week's study, we're going to see something very similar happen with Lot and his family, who are also believers. And as I've said before, the reason that I hold the views that I do about the end times are because they're the only positions, the only views, the only doctrines that work and are consistent with all of Scripture, everywhere in the Bible. I don't have to bend or twist or distort the text anywhere in Scripture. It's the only view that harmonizes with everything the Bible says about the end times. The Lord never allows those who are his to be destroyed when he judges those who have rejected him. And praise God, he has a plan to spare us from the day of judgment on the earth. Verse 33, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. You see, Abraham thought he had done enough. Abraham clearly believed that while there was a chance that there might not have been 20 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, he thought there's definitely at least 10. And so that's as far as his request went. We never would have known what would have happened if he had negotiated all the way down to one. As you may know, sadly, there were not even 10 righteous people in those cities. And we're going to read about what that means in the next chapter next week. Speaking of which, the next chapter is one of the most controversial and timely Bible studies in all of Scripture. It is rarely preached on in churches. And if you come next week to our barbecue Bible study, you're going to understand why. And let me say this. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that you shouldn't miss it because it might be the last time I can legally teach it in a public gathering of the church. That's not hyperbole, that's not being an alarmist. The day is rapidly approaching when you will not be able to teach Genesis 19 in a literal interpretation in public. You'll go to jail for it. And if you're here next week, you'll, you'll understand why. I'm, I'm really not exaggerating. So don't miss it, don't miss it. Let me say this in conclusion. If if time passing has caused you to move into the place of, of disbelief, the place of bitterness, the place of not taking the word of the Lord seriously anymore, if time passing has caused you to say, maybe I've just messed up too badly for the Lord to work something good in my life. Maybe I'm just, I'm just never gonna have a good marriage. Maybe my, my kids just aren't ever gonna walk with the Lord. Maybe I'm, I'm just never going to have a career that I actually like. 
Maybe I'm always going to feel miserable in my body. I want to ask you to grab hold of God's question with both hands this evening. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I want to call on you to simply believe, to make the choice to believe God's word and God's promises, to choose to say, I'm going to cross the line, Lord, and I'm going to believe you. And I'm not going to speak anything to the contrary. When my mind starts wandering, I'm going to stop that thought and instead I'm going to pray what your word says. Maybe your prayer is, as the man cried out to Jesus, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. You don't deserve his love, but he loves you. You don't deserve salvation, but he saved you. You don't deserve anything wonderful from the Lord, but he desires to do wonderful things for you and in you and through you. If you're in that that place of bitterness, of cynicism, we've got this time of worship and prayer coming up. Would you use this time to ask the Lord to reveal his character to you once again? And the best thing you can do is go to the back and, and take communion some point in these next few songs because nowhere is the character of God, the love of God for you revealed more clearly than at the table of communion as we're reminded of his body and his blood and his life that he laid down for you because he loves you. That is the definitive answer to the question, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The cross says nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Seek him, walk with him, know him, and you'll discover he's a wonderful God who does wonders. That's who he is. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your character that you have revealed through your son, Jesus. As he said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. And Lord, as we open your word and we encounter the radical, gracious love of Jesus. We know that it is a direct reflection of who you are as our heavenly Father. And Lord, the word wonderful is not enough to describe you, but you are wonderful, Lord. In every sense of the word and so much more. And there is nothing too wonderful for you. Father, I pray for anyone among us who has reached the place of cynicism and doubt, disbelief in the promises of God, believing in God, but no longer believing God. Father, would you give them the strength and the faith to cross the line and say, I'm choosing today to believe what the Lord says in his word about who he is and what he wants to do in my life. I'm crossing that line. Lord, would you give the gift of faith in a fresh way this evening, Lord? that we might wait on you and wait on your promises with expectation, that we might wait in a way that brings honor to you as we wait, that brings glory to you as we wait. You are wonderful, Lord. You are wonderful, and we love you for it. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.